always a good thing. If you're visiting with us today, there is a response card uh, in your bulletin. Put that, uh, or just give that to me afterwards, or to Dave or one of the elders. Uh, that'd be great. And if you are visiting and I haven't met you, I would love to meet you after the service. Um, with that said, if you would get out your sermon outline, it says it came upon the midnight clear. Sounds like a Christmas theme to me. And we are in Ruth chapter 3. Before I read this text, uh, Ruth 3 is one of the more challenging chapters in the Bible. And uh, uh, there are some blunt parts to this sermon. And I would say for some of you, this may be the most important sermon you're going to hear all year. So, with that said, let's turn to Ruth, chapter 3. It's right after Judges and before Samuel. So you get through the first five books, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. Chapter 3, and please listen carefully as this is God's word. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? She answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her, and she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? And then she told her all the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we do need it, and we always need it. And we need to be reminded of your commitment to us. We need to be reminded that we have a Redeemer who loves us with a steadfast love. We need to be reminded of Jesus. Lead us to him this morning, for we ask this in his name. Amen. We are a culture that dreams big about love. Most of our movies, music, and books, at least the most popular ones, uh, have some sort of love story woven into them. Even the successful TV shows some, seem to have some sort of required love 
interest in the show. And it doesn't matter if the show or the movie is a spy thriller about saving the world from imminent destruction. If there isn't a good-looking guy or girl standing there with you, then we're all going to die. And nobody dreams bigger than Disney. Think about it. The promise of Disney. Marriage happily ever after dominates the popular mind of our age. It's a really nice dream, but it's often presented in a way that's totally unrealistic. The Disney dream raises unrealistic expectations and then dashes them on the rocks of human weakness. Naive expectations make us high-maintenance, super-sensitive, cynical, and doubting the possibility of love. The New American Journey turns out to take us from naivete to cynicism. And in the end, we wind up feeling bitter and betrayed, and the magic is gone. And people carry over this Disney dream to their everyday life. If only I find the right person. If only I get the right job. If only we buy the right house. If only we go to the right school. If only, if only, if only. And the Disney dream not only fails to prepare us for suffering or for making tough choices or for getting through the hard times, it often makes everything even more difficult. It convinces us to expect the best and we're blown away when we discover the worst. Discovering the reality and ugliness of sin leaves us floundering. We don't know how to react. And we certainly don't know how to react biblically and we didn't expect that we would need to do anything. Biblically, it's just supposed to all work out. And to make matters worse, as our culture loses its Christian moorings and searches for new myths, for new ways of making sense of life, it's lurching back to the world of paganism, the world before Christianity, the world of Ruth, and Naomi, the world where, as Judges 21 says, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And now we can see the difference between Disney and Christianity. Disney offers groundless human optimism. I hope I'll be happy. Christianity offers real hope, the hope of a savior, the hope of a redeemer, the hope of a king. And it's all guaranteed by the promises of God. One depends on feelings, and the other is grounded in commitments. But when God is removed from the dream, the story ends badly. Christianity without Jesus just doesn't work. We end up living in line with our feelings, unchecked by the commitments that come from thinking through things. And if Jesus makes me feel good, I'll follow him. But if he doesn't do anything for me, well, then I'm going to move on to someone or something else. And we don't often articulate it that way, but that's exactly how we act. Our culture has created a huge idol out of feelings. And we've bought in, allowing our feelings to take precedence over our faith, leaving us as emotional chameleons. Being happy all the time, pretending to be happy, actually attempting to be happy. It's exhausting. So writes novelist Stephen March in the Atlantic magazine. He summarizes, the more you try to be happy, the less happy you are. Valuing happiness is not necessarily linked to having greater happiness. So what does all this have to do with Ruth chapter 3? Well, quite a bit, actually. Because today we get to deal with the always interesting issues of love, sex, and marriage. And how does Christianity differ from the culture when it comes to working out these issues in our lives? But it all has to start somewhere. And in the book of Ruth, it starts with Naomi. And her recognizing the moment when need meets opportunity. Need meets opportunity. And that's the first blank there in your outline. We read, starting at verse 1, 
Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. She replied, all that you say, I will do. Well, there's certainly a need here. Ruth needs a husband in order to survive and to carry on the family name. And now Naomi, the spirit of true mothers-in-law everywhere, sees an opportunity. Would not Boaz make an excellent husband for Ruth? And we get a new Naomi now. In chapter 1, she was pictured as this sort of beaten, bitter old woman. In chapter 2, you know, things look helpless. She blamed God. Chapter 2, she seems passive, broken in spirit. It's Ruth who took the initiative to provide for them. Ruth who did the work. Naomi stayed home. But now, however, Naomi comes to the front. We could have titled this passage, Mama Takes Charge. Naomi speaks with authority and gives Ruth her instructions. It says in verse 1, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? The word rest here literally means resting place. It's the same word she used back in chapter 1, uh, verse 9, when she prayed for a home for Ruth. She's saying she's going to help Ruth find a husband and get married and have her own home. Naomi knew what the need was, and she recognized the opportunity before them. And she trusted that where need and opportunity intersected, God was at work. So she's going to take advantage of this God-given opportunity and get to work. Now, Lawrence Jones, I've heard this quote a million times. I actually had to look it up and best trace it back to a man named Lawrence Jones, who was a great educator in the South way back at the turn of the last century. So right about the year 1900. And his philosophy of life was this. Keep on praying as if everything depends on God and keep on working as if everything depends on you. And I read that and I said, Naomi would certainly buy in. That's a philosophy she would have liked. Now, Naomi puts together the human element here. And she's pretty crafty about it. She makes sure that if she's going to have Ruth take advantage of this opportunity that God had given them, that Ruth is going to be fully prepared. She told her to do three things. Wash herself, anoint herself, and then present herself. And preparations described here are not the preparations of a woman getting ready to go out on a date. These are described elsewhere in Scripture as the preparations of a bride going to meet the bridegroom. Naomi is preparing Ruth to present herself to Boaz as his bride. Now we get to see the big picture of the book of Ruth. See, it's a play-by-play Old Testament account of a person being redeemed. By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it points ahead to Christ as our Redeemer. And this book models the kind of people who get redeemed and the actions that are taken between the Redeemer, who is now Christ, and the redeemed, who is now the church. The New Testament teaches us that marriage is a picture of the relationship that Christ has with the church. As Christ is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. And so compare Naomi's instructions for Ruth with the Apostle Paul's instructions for us in Ephesians 5. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now we have to realize, though, there's no guarantees that any of Naomi's plans are going to work. You know, in the long run, she has to leave the outcome to God. And faithfulness demands that we do all that we can do, given opportunities by God, But faithfulness also demands that having done all that we can, 
We leave the outcome to God. We place the results at the feet of the Lord of the harvest. And once all the plans and preparations are finished, Ruth is to go to the threshing room where all people are sleeping, all the men are sleeping, and she is to lay at the feet of Boaz, who's winnowing barley, which comes at the end of the harvest process. So just to give you a little background, because I know we have lots of farmers here. Actually, we're so far removed from farming, much less the life and times of harvesting crops before John Deere. Harvesting grain is first bundled in the field and then carried manually or on a cart to the threshing floor, which is basically just this open space. Sometimes it's covered, sometimes it's not of just really hard stamped earth. And there the grain is threshed. It means it's beaten, sometimes with a tooth sledge, which is dragged over it. Sometimes it's trampled under animal hooves. Hooves? Hooves? Look to the horse person here. Okay? Or sometimes it's just crushed under the cartwheels. Uh, Maybe some of you have been to Mount Vernon. You can actually see a threshing floor at Mount Vernon where George Washington had built a big barn with two floors. And uh, the top floor was the threshing floor. And they basically throw all the grain on the floor and the uh, horses would go around uh, sort of like a carousel and they'd walk uh, on the grain and they would crush the grain so that the husks can be separated from the kernels. Now, most often they didn't have that kind of Uh, big farm operation. Farming in the Old Testament tended to be real small family affairs. They didn't have lots of animals. And so this separation was usually done with what we would call a pitchfork. They would toss the wheat or the barley into the air and the lighter chaff would be blown farther away from the heavier grain. And in the end, the grain fed the people, the straw would serve as fodder for the animals, and the chaff was used for fuel. So Boaz needs a breeze in order to do the winnowing. And Naomi figures the wind is right, and she knew that Boaz would be winnowing, and he'd be sleeping by the grain overnight so that no one would steal all the results of his hard work. So that sets the scene. And timing is key in all of this and a little espionage. Ruth is to make sure that she waited until he was finished eating and drinking for the evening, and he's good and happy as he lies down. And then she's to spy out exactly where he lies down so she doesn't show up at the threshing floor in the dark, all dressed up, and wind up uncovering the feet of someone else. Someone who wasn't as noble as Boaz or something noble wouldn't be the response. So Ruth is putting both her reputation and her personal safety in grave danger. If you remember, Boaz already warned her about the risk that a foreign woman would encounter even gleaning in the fields during the day. Boaz has commanded the men not to touch her. How much greater would the danger be if she was going to present herself alone to a man in the middle of the night? And she's to uncover his feet, which in ancient Israel is a symbolic proposal for marriage. Now this phrase, uncover his feet, is a little tricky. It apparently has multiple meanings in the Hebrew, and it it can be used as a play on words, which is very common in Hebrew. But it's also used in the Bible as a metaphor for a physical relationship. And to make it even more confusing, I think that here it's being used both ways. So let's look at it as a word play in the Hebrew first. The word cover is very similar to the word for wings. And just as Boaz declares earlier in Ruth uh, 2, verse 12, that Ruth had come under the Lord's wings of refuge, now Ruth is declaring she decided to come under Boaz's wings or his covering to take refuge. So she lies down at his feet and uncovers them. Now to do this, uncover his feet. To say this is violating a cultural norm of the day would be a huge understatement. Not to mention it's pretty risky. There's a great uh, potential for promiscuity if Ruth's intentions are misunderstood. Boaz would wake up as he could feel the breeze blowing across his legs and he'd reach for his blanket 
and he'd probably get Ruth's long hair. And he's completely startled, as we saw in the text. Who are you? He doesn't know who's at his feet. Now here's where Ruth's plan diverts from Naomi's plan. Naomi simply wanted Ruth to let Boaz decide what happens next. But Ruth, with an even nobler plan, wants to make it clear what her intentions were, that she wants a commitment to marriage, not a single night of passion. And in the ancient world, the commitment of marriage is symbolized by this gesture of covering someone with the corner of uh, one's robe. If they were wearing a robe, you literally like pick it up and put it over the other person. And this custom is roughly the equivalent of an engagement ring in our culture. And that's what she's referring to in verse 9 when she says, spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. This is how Ezekiel records God's love for Israel and for us as a church. Listen to what God says to Israel in Ezekiel. It's a language of betrothal and marriage. It says, when I passed you by again and saw you, behold, you are at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. So it's clear the Bible said, teaches This is a betrothal. This is a marriage action. This is asking for a commitment. Now, to be honest, it's a pretty audacious plan. And to make the plan more difficult, the only way to know if this woman is here to propose marriage or to have a one-night stand is to know the woman first and to know what her character is like. But it's dark. It's midnight. And you better be sure you could be making a huge mistake. I mean, your total reputation is on the line here. As one scholar said, what is one to think of a woman who bathes, puts on perfume, and then in the middle of the night goes out to a field where the man is sleeping and uncovers his legs? If she's discovered, it won't look good. I thought about that. I have two married daughters. And if one of my daughters had suggested this plan to me, I would have said, what, are you crazy? That's not going to happen. But Naomi's plan minimizes some of these problems. By having Ruth go at night and approach Boaz only after he's uh, he's asleep, she minimizes the possibility of Ruth uh, being seen by the others. And by having her carefully watch where he lies down, she minimizes the possibility of her going to the wrong guy. By telling her to curl up at his feet, she minimizes the risk that he wouldn't notice her. Her plan's a failure if he doesn't wake up and say, who are you? You know, if he just sleeps through the night, this is not going to end well. But even with all of that, Naomi is counting on the character of Boaz to not take advantage of Ruth. Now, there's a neglected aspect of love on display here, and that's wisdom. Our culture puts feeling and feeling in love front and center, but totally forgets about thinking and thinking in love. Not Naomi. She thinks about how to bring love about, and that's wisdom. Without wisdom, Naomi and Ruth's situation would never change. Far too often today, we've surrendered love to the world of feelings. We've separated thinking and feeling and uh, when it comes to the subject of love. Now, our hyper-judgmental culture would be quick to call Naomi's plan manipulation. But it's only because the romanticism of the Disney dream has hijacked the word love. If you think about making virtually any other major change in your life, going to college, buying a house, starting a business, changing jobs. We think it through. We present a plan to the bank or to the investors or to the financial aid office. They want to make sure we're thinking it through. And it's not manipulation when you do that to buy a house or start a business. So why is marriage different? And it's important because it's very rare in our world for anyone to make a commitment without thinking it through. Let's look at this more closely. 
Earlier, Naomi and Boaz had protected Ruth's purity. We saw that. It commands, don't touch her, uh, take care of her, don't go to another field. You can't be protected in another field. But with this plan, Naomi is trying to protect Ruth from loneliness. And I believe our culture does exactly the opposite. By not protecting purity, it creates loneliness. Tim Keller summarizes the differences between Christianity and the culture's view of sex. He writes, Sex is a unitive act. It is a way of saying, I belong exclusively to you. After two people have given one another their whole life in a public covenant, sex seals that commitment. It's like glue, a way of creating deep intimacy between two people who say, all the rest of my life belongs to you. If you have sex outside of marriage, then you're saying, I want your body and I want to give you my body, but I don't want to give you the rest of my life. I don't want to give you myself legally, psychologically, or permanently. Let's give each other our bodies, but keep our lives to ourselves. Let's stay independent. I think that's a very profound way of looking at this subject. I can give you my life and then you get my body. Or I can give you my body but you don't get my life. I keep that for myself. That's what's happening. That's what this decision is all about. And our culture encourages, particularly young women, to give away their sexuality in order to get commitment. And it's a false traje trajectory. Feeling love is invested by our culture with almost divine power. But that's foolishness. Over and over and over and over and over again, I can't say it enough, men, take that gift, and when the costs of love begin to weigh heavy, they discard the relationship, leaving the woman emotionally spent and alone. Another article in the Atlantic Magazine writer Kate Bullock interviewed five young women, recent college graduates, so we're talking 23, 24 years old, who are immersed in a hookup culture of sex without commitment. And she was surprised, she was shocked to discover that all of them wanted to get married. All of them wanted to make and to receive commitments. And all of them were tired and couldn't bear the constant sexual auditioning that led nowhere. In contrast, when we think biblically, we realize that hesed love, unconditional love, covenant love, steadfast love, provides the framework for both feelings and commitment. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, writing from prison in Nazi Germany, said it's not your love that sustains the marriage, but the marriage that sustains your love. The biblical model connecting sex with commitment helps to keep people whole. But the cultural model separating sex from commitment fractures not only the relationship, but the person as well. And people are left with not only uh, no commitment, but without the covenant love and the covenant loyalty that define biblical relationships. That doesn't happen to Ruth. She greatly values covenant loyalty. So next we see that loyalty meets honor. Look at verse 6. Loyalty meets honor. Naomi sends Ruth to the threshing floor to lie at the feet of Boaz. And this sort of unusual instruction is actually a two-pronged affair. It's a request for marriage from the bride to the bridegroom, but it's also an act letting Boaz know that as one in bondage, She's willing to receive redemption from her kinsman redeemer. Of course, in both ways, the scenario prefigures Christ. First, as the bridegroom to his bride, which is the church, and second, as the redeemer of his people. And so that sets the stage for these instructions to be carried out, starting at verse 6. Let me just look there for a moment. It says, So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. 
And she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. I just think that's a hysterical line. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Last part of verse 9 and verse 10. Key parts here. She says, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness, hesed, greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it's true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. It basically means a closer relative. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So we see here, truth, uh, Ruth is tremendously loyal. First, in verse 9, she says, I am Ruth, your servant. She displays a servant attitude. Notice what she doesn't do. She doesn't identify herself as Ruth the Moabite, but as Ruth, your servant. Her mindset is not on what she would gain, although that's great, but rather on what she could offer. And in verse 10, Boaz praises her for her selfless action. He says, you have made this last kindness, this last hesed, and you have to go back to the previous two sermons, really get the whole detail on how important that word hesed is. Steadfast love, everlasting kindness, the dominant word of the Old Testament. He says, you've made this last hesed greater than the first. Earlier in chapter 2, Boaz had honored Ruth's loyalty to Naomi. He praised her for her sacrifice in leaving Moab and her family. And now he tells her that her loyalty increases. She's been loyal and kind, not only to Naomi, but to Boaz as well, and he praises her for it. And he continues on praising Ruth because she did what was right and what was according to the law when he says, you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. Obviously, it's a different time because those young men were not redeemers. Today, people get married <clears throat> for lots of different reasons. Some people marry for money. They're looking for status, not love. But most people do marry for love. But in so doing, they overlook often the character of their prospective mate. They follow the old proverb that love is blind and marriage is an institution for the blind. That was supposed to be funny. Ruth doesn't fall into any of these categories. She doesn't choose to marry Boaz for his money and she's not marrying him out of blind love. She's marrying him because he is her kinsman redeemer. That's a really important term in the Bible. And we're going to have to come back to it, and we will. But for now, I want to keep the focus on character. Because verse 11, Boaz says something very interesting. He says that Ruth is a worthy woman. Some versions put it a woman of noble character. In Hebrew, a woman of noble character literally means a woman of strength. Elsewhere, this phrase only occurs in the Bible's portrait of the ideal wife in Proverbs 12 and Proverbs 31. And last week, we saw in Ruth 2, verse 1, that Boaz was referred to as a worthy man. It meant that he was a man of substance, referring to his moral strength and character. Here we see, for Ruth, uh, is a worthy woman, a woman of substance, referring to her moral strength and character. Clearly, the word strength doesn't refer to physical strength, but strength of character, her devotion, her creativity, generosity. It's talking about moral and spiritual strength. And Boaz recognizes these qualities in Ruth. She's a good match for Boaz. After all, as we saw, he's a man of standing, using the masculine words for noble character. And the Bible is telling us that Boaz is a man of moral and spiritual strength as well. So now we've hit the moment of truth for Boaz and Ruth. Is it going to be wedding bells or wailing walls for Ruth? Would Boaz keep his promise to be kinsman redeemer? We see in verse 11 that Boaz is true to his word and to his responsibility. He tells Ruth, and now my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. 
for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Boaz will do what is best and right for Ruth. He keeps his promises. Now earlier in verse 9, Ruth tells Boaz she has come to him because you are a redeemer. She recognizes Boaz's position in the family. She honors Boaz for being willing to redeem others, even when it means taking a risk on their behalf. In essence, what Ruth asked Boaz to do is to answer his own prayer. He had prayed back in chapter 2, verse 12, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz, or Ruth reminds Boaz of his own words when she says, spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. She's telling Boaz, you're God's agent to bring about the reward you promised and the reward you prayed for. I find refuge in the shadow of his wings, but you're the means by which that will practically come about. And you have to love Boaz's reply, verse 10, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness, this hesed, greater than the first, that you've not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. One commentator says when Boaz refers to her latter kindness, He's referring to her abandonment of homeland and family out of devotion to Naomi. But now we see something even more impressive. She's not marrying out of either passion or greed, but setting aside personal preferences, she chooses a marriage of benefit to her family. She reckoned her own happiness as secondary to the provision of an heir for her late husband and for Naomi. She doesn't pursue the attractive option of a young man. And Boaz takes note of all this, and rewards her. Now, there's a few things that you have to know to really understand what's going on here. First of all, kinsman redeemer is an uncommon uh, but extremely important term in the Bible. In Israel, kinsman redeemers are a circle of close relatives whose duty is to protect the weak members of the family. And Leviticus 25 actually explains most of their duties. They're to buy back land which poor relatives had been forced to mortgage. They're to buy the freedom of relatives whose poverty had been forced to sell them into slavery. They're the ones who ensure that family members received justice when they had to go to court. In short, it's the job of the kinsman redeemer to keep the family and the property together. But Ruth has no idea how Boaz, her kinsman redeemer, is going to receive her. She simply had to trust that he'd do the right thing. And that's not always easy. Boaz could refuse to receive Ruth. He could get offended or angry. There's risks in this plan. But Ruth trusts in her kinsman redeemer, and so she carries out the plan. No guarantees, but she demonstrates trust. And that's what pleases God. God doesn't expect perfection. He doesn't even expect success, at least not by any sort of human measurement. He simply wants us to trust him. And that's what Ruth does, and that's what we can do. The kinsman redeemer is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our kinsman redeemer. And the reason the word redemption is used so often in the New Testament to describe the work of Christ. Christ paid the price so that the one redeemed may be free. We're the ones who've been freed from slavery to sin by the death of Christ on the cross. He bore our sins. He paid our penalty. He redeemed us. And the only biblical example of a kinsman redeemer in the entire Bible is Boaz. And it reveals the love side of redemption. So far, everything's going well. Ruth has followed Naomi's instructions. She's gone to Boaz in the middle of the night, proposed marriage. Everything's on track. And then we get to verse 12. And we see that Boaz prevents false expectations. And essentially he's telling Ruth not to get her hopes up too soon. Because he tells Ruth in verse 12, Now it's true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. There's someone else, another relative who's closer to Naomi. He has to be asked first. That's just the way life is sometimes. You know, about the time we near the finish line, somebody moves it. No sooner have you pumped the water out of the basement, you discover a leak in the roof. 
No wonder the Bible praises patience as a virtue. But we see that Boaz doesn't leave Ruth's hopes lying dashed on the ground. He makes a promise, verse 13. Remain tonight and in the morning if he will redeem you good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. He makes a promise before the Lord that if the other man chooses not to marry Ruth, he will. He promises that Ruth will not be left alone. He promises Ruth that she and Naomi are going to be taken care of. Boaz doesn't have to redeem Ruth, but out of love, he chooses to redeem Ruth. And it's a great story. And biblically, it's a really important story. But it's not over yet, because we have this problem. What's this other guy going to do? And so we see problems meet patience. Problems meet patience, verse 14. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? She told her all the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said uh, to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. So earlier, Boaz has told Ruth that all the townspeople had recognized that Ruth is a worthy woman, a woman of noble character. Now Boaz moves to protect that reputation. He tells Ruth to get up before she can be recognized so that no one will know she was there. After all, how would it look for everyone else? of there to wake up and see Ruth lying at Boaz's feet, you know what they think. So Boaz moves to protect Ruth from needless gossip and rumors. He has her leave early. And then we see he provides for her again. Verse 15, he doesn't send her away empty-handed. He gives Ruth and Naomi more food, six measures of barley. Boaz is not only sending Ruth home to Naomi with more food, but with this symbolic promise that one way or the other, they're going to be provided for. Problems are not necessarily bad. They prepare us. They prepared Ruth as well. And so we see Ruth go home to Naomi, tells Naomi all about what happened. But rather than be disappointed that Ruth can't marry Boaz right away, Naomi takes it all in stride. It's amazing. She counsels Ruth, verse 18, wait. She says, wait, my daughter, till you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest but we'll settle the matter today. So Ruth once again follows the advice of Naomi, and this time, instead of taking the initiative, she has to sit back and wait. So one time, she has to be, uh, take the initiative. Another time, she has to stop and wait. And she's able to trust in Naomi's counsel and, uh, and trust in Booth, uh, Boaz's deep concern for her. Once again, we see that Boaz is modeling the Lord's character in all of this. His concern for Ruth mirrors God's concern for us. And if Boaz cares for Ruth, how much more does the Lord care for us? It's the first lesson of patience. We must rely wholeheartedly on God's concern. You know, as Christians, we can be patient because we know that God is for us and not against us. If God doesn't intervene and act when we want him to, it doesn't mean that he doesn't love us anymore. It just means he has a different schedule than we do. We know he's going to work things out. Therefore, a patient Christian can wait for God to act according to his timing because his timing is always better than our timing. We simply have to believe that God is more concerned for his church and his people than we ever could be. Second, we learn... It's about his commitment and not ours. It's the second lesson of patience. We must rely wholeheartedly on God's commitment. Patience banks on God's promises of help, just as Ruth trusted in Boaz's promises. We can be confident. We can endure hard circumstances because we know God is for us who can stand against us. We can be resolved to wait out the storms because we know that God said he won't let them overwhelm us. And like Boaz, he is 
committed himself to protect us and provide for us. And because God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, it's the same lesson. God's commitment is a commitment worth waiting for. You want to write that down. God's commitment is a commitment worth waiting for. God is just as committed to his people today as he was to Boaz and Bethlehem. He only asks that we wait patiently and watch him fulfill his commitments, his concern, his commitments, and third, his character, not ours. It's the third lesson of patience. We must rely wholeheartedly on the character of God. Ruth could depend on Boaz because his character inspires confidence. He kept his word. He kept his promises. He's trustworthy. And again, Boaz reminds us of God's character. If Boaz is trustworthy, how much more so is the Lord? God does what he says he'll do. God's character is consistent. He's steadfast, loving, and kind. And because of God's character, we can wait patiently for God's action. We can wait for God's redemption. And we can wait because redemption, in the end, is a love story. It's a love story. The point of all this is to show that the mercy Boaz displays is not mandatory. It's offered freely. Boaz had plenty of loopholes in the law. If he wanted to use the law to limit mercy, he certainly could have done so, but he chose not to. We can always find a law to limit mercy. There's always a good reason to be stingy and to justify my unwillingness to help. Kind of like the priest and the Levite in the Good Samaritan parable. Boaz could have played the priest or the Levite, so to speak, but he chooses to be the Good Samaritan and to display the mercy of God in redeeming Ruth. We know the ultimate Good Samaritan is Jesus, who saw us lying in our own blood, half dead, side of the road, slaves to sin, and came to redeem us from our sin and to deliver us. Christ doesn't have to redeem us. We're lost sinners. If he chose not to redeem us, he'll still be a holy and just God. But he loves us. And he loved us so much that God the Father sent God the Son to save us, to redeem us. See, salvation through redemption is a love story. We have it told right here in simple language, illustrated by the story of Ruth from Moab and Boaz from Bethlehem. Boaz agrees to serve as Ruth and Naomi's redeemer and to save them. And it's striking that this occurs at midnight. How many times in God's word does he come to bring salvation and judgment in the middle of the night? You know, it would be easy to deduce from the book of Ruth that this is how we're to approach our redeemer, humbly lying at his feet and asking him to be our redeemer. And certainly I think there's a lot of truth to that. And if Jesus is not your Redeemer this morning, you're much worse off than Ruth was. If you're here this morning without the redeeming blood of Jesus Christ covering your sins, then you're in the same boat as Pharaoh's firstborn son when the angel of the Lord passed over in the last plague. The angel looked to see if the blood was covering the doorpost of the home. And if it wasn't, the firstborn son was struck down and killed due to God's wrath towards sin. God's redemption of Israel in the book of Exodus occurs at midnight when the firstborn of Egypt die as the means which God's firstborn Israel live. God says he'll not be mocked. And his covenant deals with mankind. He makes a covenant with his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus initiates the new covenant at the Last Supper while celebrating the Passover. And Jesus said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. In the Old Testament, to be forgiven for sin, you have to lay your hands on an animal that would be slaughtered, pointing to the transfer of human guilt paid for by the sacrifice of an animal. Now the New Testament tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Furthermore, the New Testament tells us that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. But Jesus Christ is the perfect, spotless, blameless sacrifice who came to die on the cross to perfectly pay for our sins as our Redeemer. We've been bought with a price, the blood of Jesus, 
And the greatest of prophets saw Jesus and declared, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Of course, one day there's another midnight. We've been singing about it all morning. Angels sing about the redemption of the world. As the shepherds kept watch over their flocks by night, they heard Luke 2, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among uh, those with whom he is pleased. That midnight song is memorialized for us in the Christmas hymn, It Came Upon the Midnight Clear. Now you know where the title comes from. The glorious song of old, from angels bending near the earth to touch their harps of gold. Peace on the earth, goodwill to men, from heaven's all-gracious king. The world in solemn stillness lay to hear the angels sing. So it's fitting that we sing that song, as well as remember that good Christian men rejoice because Jesus Christ was born to save. It's a reminder that God continues to show his steadfast love and everlasting kindness to those who love this Christmas story. The story of Jesus, the Son of God, Savior of sinners, who came at the fullness of time in order to redeem those of us who were born under the condemnation of the law. He takes those of us who are empty and fills us with good things for his glory. And we have to come, as Ruth did, before our Redeemer, casting ourselves at his feet and asking him, spread your wings over your servant, for you are our Redeemer. Have you done that? Have you asked Jesus to cover your sins? Have you asked Jesus to be your redeemer? Because I don't know what your feelings are telling you this morning, but I know when it's time to make a commitment. And that time is now. Think it through. Be wise. For it's almost midnight. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that. And then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us, as always, by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our Savior. Teach us the surpassing value of knowing our Redeemer, Christ Jesus, who loves us with an everlasting love. Help us not to be led by our feelings, but by our commitments. Enable us to trust you, knowing that your commitment is a commitment worth waiting for. And for this we give you thanks. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Chapter 54, fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will not forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth. He is called. For the Lord has called you with everlasting love. I will have compassion on you says the Lord, your Redeemer. God bless you. See you next week.